Morning, church. Good to see you all again this morning. We made it through Thanksgiving. We did it as unconventional, I'm sure, as it was for some, if not most of us. Uh, I really hope and pray that you were able to enjoy your time. We, we did some different things this year than in times past, but it was good just to be together as a family. And one of the things we tried to do was to think about all of the things this year that we did in light of COVID. So things changed, plans changed, but there were some real positive things that God brought into our lives. We tried to focus at least a little while with five young kids. You don't get a lot of dinner conversation, but we tried at least for a little bit to, to think on that. So I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving as well. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be there in just a little bit. And as we turn there, I don't know where you all are at. Some people, some people have had their Christmas decorations up for like well over a week. Some people are like, don't even talk to me about Christmas until I get through Thanksgiving. Like, don't play your Christmas music, don't talk to me about it, don't wish me a Merry Christmas until we get through Thanksgiving. They're like hardline December 1st type people. Regardless of where we're at, like Isaac said, we're going to begin a celebration of Advent this week. We'll be taking a break from our preaching series in the Gospel of John, and we'll be celebrating Advent for the next three weeks, four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so if you're with us online or downstairs, I hope you can join us. I hope you can gather with us in some form over these next four weeks as we celebrate the birth and the coming of our King. As I thought about Advent this year, a story came to mind. It's a story that I read recently about a cross-country runner. It was a guy who came off a pretty successful fall season. And so after the holiday break, he gathered again with his team, and his coach purposefully had designed a couple of shorter races just to get the kids running again, just to get them exercising and moving again. So because he had such a successful fall season, this particular runner decided like, no big deal, like this is a piece of cake. And so he took off sprinting on his first lap, quickly got out in front, quickly took the the lead. He figured that he didn't need to check his pacing because he was so used to running longer races that this was going to be no big deal. He would just push straight through to the finish line with ease. But that's not what happened. Soon, his lungs started to burn. His muscles began to cramp. His lead started to slowly dwindle. And his teammates started passing him and mocking him as they ran by. Eventually, he got injured. He faked injury and took himself out of the race. In some ways, I can identify with this runner. When I think about how I began 2020 and how I'm ending 2020, I feel like I can relate to this guy. Like there were times this year, and I'm sure you can relate to this, there's times this year where I've been sprinting, running hard, trying to keep pace. And there were times this year that I felt like I'd like to fake an injury. I'd like to take myself out of the race. Is there an off-ramp anywhere around here? Because I'm looking to exit now. I'd like to sit in the grass for a little while. Can you relate to that at all? 
And so here's how I'm trying to approach Advent this year. I'm trying to approach Advent as an opportunity to check my pacing. Pacing is simply a tool when you're a runner that you use to to evaluate your pace, right? To evaluate how well you're running. Run too slow and you fail to reach your potential. Run too fast and you fail by injury or you fail by running out of steam before the finish line. Good pacing, finding that balance, whether you're an athlete, whether you're at work, whether you're living life during a pandemic, Regardless of where you are in life, pacing is an important, critical issue, and it's also critical for disciples of Christ. Hebrews 12 calls us to run our race with endurance. And then it says this, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So part of our running, part of our racing, part of our enduring is done by looking to Jesus. That's what Advent is. It's an opportunity to slow down. It's an opportunity to focus and to look to Jesus, to celebrate him, to remember all that God has done for us through what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Some of us, no doubt, are feeling very winded. Frankly, our lungs feel like they've been burning for quite some time. Some of us might feel like we're running well. We're, we're keeping pace, like we're, we're just pressing on. This year has been difficult, but we're, we're pressing on. Some of us feel like maybe we're sitting on the grass, like we've taken ourselves out of the race as Christians, as followers of Jesus. But regardless of where we find ourselves as we head in to Advent, all of us are called to look to Jesus. We're all called to endure by looking to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. Now the way that we're going to do that this year, the way that we're going to look to Jesus this Advent season is by studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is an idea that we got from Sinclair Ferguson who wrote an Advent devotional book called Love Came Down at Christmas. And so the hope is that by looking at this famous love chapter, not only are we going to be able to check our pace and evaluate our own love, but we'll be able to better understand Jesus' great love for us. We'll slow down. We're like runners checking our watches, checking our pace, evaluating how we're doing, but we're going to do that primarily by looking at the love of Christ so that we could better understand how he wants to love through us. Understanding the love of Christ for us so that we can understand how he wants to love through us. So today we start with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What in the world is Paul talking about here, and how does that relate to Christmas? Let's find out. So there were a lot of problems in Corinth, in this church that Paul is running to, a lot of confusion. 
And Paul is writing in hopes of addressing those problems and clearing up that confusion. And throughout the letter, he gives some pretty clear markers as to what issue he's talking about. And so if you flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1, Paul writes this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. So clearly what Paul is talking about here is the topic, the issue of spiritual gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about. That's where the love chapter falls right in the middle. Now speaking in tongues is one of the gifts that Paul is addressing here. Now if you haven't spent a lot of time studying the spiritual gifts... That sounds really weird, right? Speaking in tongues, even Christians who do know about the spiritual gifts get all whacked out about speaking in tongues. Like, what is Paul talking about? What is going on here? Well, I think it's helpful to remember two accounts from our Bibles as we think about this gift, speaking in tongues. First, remember Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. What happens there? bunch of people gather together, right, and they gather to create a tower, to build a city monument, so to speak. Think of like a skyscraper. And the Bible tells us what the motivation is. It says they did that to make a name for themselves. So here is mankind's effort to unify apart from God, okay, to unify together, to build a name for themselves, to establish themselves, to make life all about Me, all about us. We're the ones in charge. We're the authority around here. We're the ones that are going to do things the way we want to have them done. We're making a name for ourselves. We're making life all about us. How does God respond? The Bible says that God comes down and disrupts that rebellion by confusing their languages. So they gather together, all speaking one language. And they're working diligently together, speaking one language. And God comes down and gives them many languages, so they can't do that anymore. They can't communicate. They can't work together. And as a result, they scatter. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus dies buries and rises from the dead, his disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem and they're praying. And the Holy Spirit rushes upon them and fills them and they begin to speak in other languages. Right? So here we have God in response, in Genesis 11, God in response to man's rebellion against him God's response to man making life all about us is to scatter them. In in Acts chapter 2, God's response to Jesus' obedience, God's response to Jesus making life all about God, God doesn't scatter, but God gathers people back together by the same languages. People from all over the known world at the time are in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And God fills the the disciples to speak in other languages so that they can hear the mighty works of God. Do you see what God's doing? He's using the same issue of Babel, and he's gathering people together through Christ by those same languages. 
and thus the, tongue, the gift of tongues is born. This message is so good. The gospel, the mighty works that God has done to save sinners in Jesus is so good. Everybody needs to hear about this. And so I'm going to give gifts of tongues so that people can speak the gospel in other languages so that all the nations can be gathered to Christ. So what's going on in Corinthians then? Well, simply they are acting more like the people in Babel than they are like the disciples in Jerusalem. In, in Corinth, speaking tongues, like if you could speak in other languages, you were a big deal. Like you were the man. If you were a tongue speaker, if you could speak in other languages, like you were the spiritually elite. And if you could not only speak in the languages of other, other men, if you could speak the language of heaven, if you could speak with angels, dang. Like you were... You were a big deal. Which is great if the mantra of the church is, it's all about me. If the mantra of the church is, it's all about my gifts. It's all about my notoriety. It's all about me feeling satisfied. It's all about me using my gifts to be noticed and to be to feel important and to be a big deal. The slight problem is that's not the mantra of the church. (laughs) Right? The mantra of the church is that it's all about God. The mantra of the church is that it's all about Jesus. The mantra of the church is that it's all about what Jesus has done to come and to rescue us and to restore us to God and to one another. That's the mantra of the church. The glory of Christ is the mantra of the church. When we get this wrong, the wheels fall off. And the wheels had fallen off in Corinth. They thought that their gifts made them spiritual. They thought that they were impressive. They thought that they had reached a level of maturity. But in reality, they were acting like little kids making a lot of noise. A while back, Vicky captured a phone. We only had three kids at the time, and our kids were really young, our three boys. And they decided one day to get out all of the pots and pans because they were going to play worship band. All right? Life as a pastor's kid, right? So they're they're gathering together all of Vicky's pots and pans and, and ladles and spoons, and they're just going for it, right? It was awesome. We loved it. As parents, we loved it. We laughed. It was great. Got videos. We still watch them once in a while. But after a while, it was time to pull the plug. And if one of them or all of them were to come to me and say, hey, Dad, we got it. Like, you can can rest easy. Sunday morning, it's on us. We're going to be leading worship at church. We've got this. Probably say, maybe not yet. Maybe not quite yet. Right? It was cute for a little while in our home, but we got neighbors. Like banging on pots and pans, even as worship, gets a little annoying after a little while. That's Paul's point here. The Corinthians were like banging pots and pans. They were like noisy gongs. They were like clanging cymbals. And what God was trying to get them to see, what God's trying to still get us to see, 
is that what matters most is not our gifting. What matters most is not how impressive we are. What matters most is not how successful we are. What matters most is how well we love. The mark that's supposed to distinguish our lives above all else is love. Love means that we try less and less to impress people with our intelligence. Like we're a big deal because of how well educated we are. Love means that we try less and less, that we find ourselves less and less thinking that we're better than other people because we have the means and the ability to make more money than they do. Love means that we boast less and less in our athletic talents or our skill in some trade. Love means that we strive less and less for power and notoriety for our own sake, but we see our positions of power or influence and authority to serve the sake of others. If you think that you are a mature Christian, if you think that you're a spiritual Christian, if you think that you're spirit-filled, ask yourself this question. Is love the distinguishing mark of my life? And i got to tell you guys that as I check my pace, as I run my race, I think I'm off the mark. We were out at Starbucks the other day, drive through window, getting a cup of coffee. And when we went to pay, the barista said, oh, don't worry about that. The, the car in front of you got you. I was like, sweet. That's awesome. So Vicky said, well, we should do the same thing for the person behind us. Like, we should pay it forward, right? So I look at my rearview mirror. Older gentleman, I'm like, this is awesome. I get to bless this guy. Until the barista told me how much it cost. I'm like, what's this? I'm thinking like a coffee and a Danish, max. This guy must have been doing like all of his Christmas shopping at Starbucks. I'm looking in the rearview mirror thinking like, just one dude, you got someone in the back seat? Are you out getting coffee like for your whole neighborhood? I was all good at loving until it cost me more than I wanted to pay. When love costs you more than you want to pay, when love brings you farther than you want to go, when love calls you to do something more than you want to do, it's not so easy. I find that when in those moments I'm checking my, my pace, I'm off the mark, and I think if you're honest, so are all of you. Love is easy when it's convenient. Love is easy when it's comfortable, but when it's more than we want to pay, we show that our pacing needs to pick up. Now, that's a funny story and all, but when I drill down deeply, I see that what's at the root is the same pride that infected the people in Babel, the same pride that infected the Corinthians, the same pride that permeates that deep-seated selfishness in me, that's what I need a cure for. Where do we find the cure for that? Where do I find the cure for my lovelessness? I find the cure in Christmas. The cure for my lovelessness, the cure for your lovelessness is found in the love of Jesus Christ. 
That's why in our race, we've got to keep looking to Jesus. As Ferguson points out, the Christmas story is filled with the very thing that the Corinthians were so impressed by. The Christmas story was filled and is filled with the tongues of men and of angels. Think about the the story. Isaac referred to it as he was leading worship. The story of Christ's birth. It was an angel that came and told Mary that she would give birth to a son. When we fast forward in the life of Christ, when he is tempted in the wilderness, when he's fasting 40 days after Satan had tempted him, Mark tells us that angels came to minister to him. Jesus, the God-man, speaking with angels, the tongues of men and of angels. At the end of his life, when Jesus wept and agonized in the garden and prayed, God, your will be done. Luke tells us that an angel came to strengthen him. Jesus talked with angels. And that same night when the priests and the guards came to get Jesus, do you remember what happened? Peter, rough and ready Peter, pulls out his sword and chops off the ear of one of the men who came to arrest Jesus. What does Jesus say to Peter? Peter, stop it. Put your sword away. Don't you think that I could call on my Father in heaven and he at once would send 12 legions of what? Angels, 72,000 angels. Jesus could do more than speak in the tongues of angels. He created angels. Angels were the servants to Jesus. He had the power to tell angels what to do, but in the moment of his deliverance, he didn't. Jesus knew that if he chose to tell the angels to deliver him, he'd be choosing not to deliver any of us. Jesus was the most spiritually gifted person ever to live. But unlike the Corinthians, he didn't use his gifts and his power to his own advantage. He used his gifts and his power to the advantage of all of us. The distinguishing mark of Jesus' life was love. And unlike me, Jesus didn't get a twinge when love cost him more than he wanted to pay. He willingly, joyfully, lovingly endured the cross for love's sake so that I and you could be delivered from our sin. And it was the distinguishing love of Christ that altered Paul's life. That's why he's writing this chapter. He personally knew this love. He said, that's the reason I live. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew that the distinguishing mark of Jesus' life was love, and that love was now the distinguishing mark that Paul was trying to live for. The same is true for us. Jim, my buddy Jim Hughes, was telling me recently that his car broke down. 
he had a bad starter. That's what they eventually came to find out. And the reason being is that he had modified the engine such that there were other components, other pipes that had surrounded the starter. So eventually it just burned down. It got too hot, got fried in there. And when they eventually removed that starter, there was like metal shavings and stuff just falling out of this thing. Like it had totally disintegrated. If there was ever a year that made me feel like that starter, it's got to be this one. The engine of our hearts is supposed to be running, ignited by the supreme love of Jesus Christ, all that he's done for us. But I feel like that starter, I feel like this year has been a lot of pressure, a lot of heat. And I feel like for a lot of us, there's stuff coming out of our lives, like those shavings dropping out, and it ain't all love. And so maybe what you need, and maybe what I need at Christmas, is not a new Xbox. It's not a new screen TV. It's not a beach vacation. Listen, we can't travel anywhere anyways. What we need are new starters. We need a replacement. We need our hearts reignited by the supreme love that Jesus has shown for you. He loved you. He gave himself for you. Love was the distinguishing mark of his life so that love could be the distinguishing mark of yours. I think that's Paul's aim here. I think he's trying to remind those in Christ those that are connected to Christ. That Jesus' love for us is to be flowing from us in everything that we do. And just to be clear, we know this, love, Christian love, is not mere sentimentality, right? It's not the hallmark, make my heart feel warm and oozy, fuzzy kind of love. That's not what we're talking about here. Love is a choice that we must make, not a feeling that we must have. C.S. Lewis said that anybody can show kindness to another that he feels a certain affection for. What he's saying is anybody can be kind to those that he likes. The Christian, says Lewis, is trying to treat all people kindly and he finds himself liking more and more people. Actually, he finds himself liking people he would never imagine himself liking. That's when you know the love is distinguishing mark of your life. You're, you're finding yourself liking people you never would imagine yourself liking. You're being kind to people that you never imagined yourself being kind to. But there's more. Christian love is not just the ability to choose love. Paul says, he'll go on to say, that we can give all that we have to the poor. We can even let our bodies be burned. We can give ourselves as martyrs, but still not love. How does that work? Well, apparently you can do those things disconnected from Christ. You don't have to be a Christian to be altruistic. The love that God is calling us to is a divine love. It's a distinct love. D.A. Carson says that what makes God's love different is that it's self-originating. It only comes from God himself. 
You can't manufacture something that only comes from God. God's calling us to be marked by a love that only comes from him. And it's God's love. It's only God's love that can conquer the selfishness in your and my heart. It's only God's love that can help you overcome whatever it is that hinders you from loving. It's a distinct love. It's a divine love. In Christ, friends, we have access to a love that can endure injury without retaliation. In Christ, we have access to a love that can pay back in kindness what's dealt to you in pain. In Christ, we have access to a love that can calm the easily triggered heart. Do you ever have one of those? Do you ever have a heart that's just spring-loaded? You're just like waiting for the next person to offend you so that you can explode in anger. In Christ, you have access to a love that melts that kind of heart. In Christ, we finally have the ability to throw out all of our well-organized receipts that we're hanging on to, all of the offenses that have been committed against us. We do this, right? We have these organized, well-organized filing cabinets that we meticulously nurse and go through of all the offenses that people have committed against us. The love of Christ allows us to get rid of those, to forgive, to move on. In Christ, we have access to a love that compels us to love the unlovely. Why? Because that's how God loved you. The love of God is shown for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were unlovely, Christ died for us. The love that's supposed to mark our lives is distinct. It's different. It's a love that depends less and less on the actions of those around me. It's a love that depends more and more on Christ in me. I don't love because of what is or is not in you. I love because the Christ in me is compelled to love you regardless of what you do regardless of who you are. This is the effect, friends, that I want Christmas to have on all of us. As we look to Jesus, as we contemplate his deep and majestic and divine love, that that love would fuel us as we continue running our race. We'd have that new starter We'd have hearts that are ignited by the love of Christ that his love more and more would be the distinguishing mark of our lives. In Corinth and throughout the Greco-Roman world, apathy, apathy, no passion, passionlessness, apathy was the virtue of the day. Greek philosophers really harped on this. They taught that a rational way of life, that was virtuous. Life with the mind, not with the heart. Paul is calling here 
He's calling on the Corinthians to perceive God's love with their minds so that they can love passionately with all of their hearts. He's calling for a countercultural love. And no doubt, if the Corinthians would actually do this, they would get the attention of the watching world. Friends, may we get the attention of our watching world. May we take this Advent season to slow down, to ponder the love of Christ that came down at Christmas so that we can emerge from this season running our race with endurance, loving one another, and loving others with the love that we ourselves have received. Amen.